Beloved, this is Easter. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is the time that we have a special focus on Jesus' victory over the grave, Jesus' victory over the tomb. We remember and celebrate the resurrection of Lord Jesus. Uh, what I'm going to do this morning is pivot just a little bit. Rather than focusing on his resurrection, uh, we're going to spring from that and go to our resurrection. God says to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death, by man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now in that particular verse, he's talking about believers. And he's using this vivid imagery from the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel would, at the beginning of a harvest, offer up the first fruits, the choicest and the best of the harvest. And this act of obedience and faith on the part of Israel would consecrate and guarantee the rest of the harvest in the economy of God. And what Jesus is telling us there is that Christ, as the first fruits of his resurrection, of the choicest resurrection, precedes, consecrates, and guarantees your resurrection, our resurrection. And so that will be our focus here this morning. And beloved, I will say this. Dear friend, people want to know the end of the story. You may have heard said at a funeral service, at a celebration of life service, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's a true statement. That's from Genesis 3, verse 19. But that's not the end of the story, is it? And last words should be lasting Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, written by the Apostle John. John, at this point when he wrote this, is the last surviving apostle. The son of thunder has become the apostle of truth and love. In Revelation 1 verse 19, Jesus himself instructs John. He says, write therefore the things which you have seen, speaking of the past. And that encompasses chapter 1 of Revelation. And then Jesus continues in this apocalyptic vision, this unveiling vision he gives to Apostle John and says, and write also the things which are. That's the present. That's covered in chapters 2 through 3. And at the end of verse 19 there in chapter 1, he says, and the things which shall take place after these things. The future events, the last things, the end times. And that's in chapter 4 through 22. Uh, the book of Revelation, in theological terms, it's an eschatological book. That means a book about the end times. And what's interesting Beloved, what's interesting, dear friend, in all of Scripture, when God has the portions of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, in the Olivet Discourse, for example, the main purpose, the main thrust of these end times, including the book of Revelation, is faithfulness in the present. God commands us to be discerning, to be ready, and to be strong. He prepares us to live and to witness in a hostile world. And even in Revelation, while it is filled with amazing prophecy, John's concern is not primarily with dates and signs. He is concerned primarily with righteousness and readiness, with righteous living and readiness. Like 
his epistles. Like John's epistles, the aged apostle wrote his apocalypse, mark this, to assure believers and to warn unbelievers. Beloved, listen as I read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Our main two verses this morning are verses 5 through 6, but we'll begin in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we now come to verses 5 and 6, our main text this morning. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Beloved, what we have in our text in verses 5 and 6 are two great truths that remain untouched at the turning of the seasons. There are two deaths. There are two resurrections. You are either born twice where you will only die once or you're born once and you will die twice. And in our text, the outline that we have for this morning is we see the eternal flame of the second death, and we see the royal priesthood of the first resurrection. And the intent here, beloved, is that we, that you and I, would understand life after death. And by understanding life after death, we will know how to die, and we will know how to live. May God bless the reading. May God bless even the preaching of his word. The first Great truth, beloved, is the eternal flame of the second death. This is the sobering news. This is the grave news, the bad news before the good news. You see, Jesus' mighty voice will call all the dead back to life. John 5.25, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What he's talking about here, and especially as he expands on in the passage, which I'll read in a bit, he's not talking about universal salvation. He is talking about universal resurrection, that all, every man, woman, and child will be called back to a bodily resurrection, both the saved and the unsaved, to eternal life and to eternal death. His mighty voice will call all the dead back to life. This is the culminating presence of the judgment of God. This is where creation quails and flees before her creator. 
He continued, Jesus continues in verse 27. He gave him authority. God, the Father, gave God, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Watch this. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, beloved, there are two resurrections. There is a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous. You see, graves and seas are but prisons. Death is the guard. But there will be a day when these will be opened and all will stand before the judge. None will be able to refuse his voice. Jesus will call all back to life in Revelation 20, just not at the same time. In verse 5 of 20, the beginning of our text here this morning, again, the Apostle John writes, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, beloved, Revelation is an incredible book. I can't wait to preach through it, verse by verse, passage by passage. But whether it's an expository walk through passage by passage, verse by verse, or kind of a dropping in as we are here, one of the beautiful elements of the Word of God is the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. One obvious plain main thing here, at least main to God, is thousand years. In verses two through seven, six verses, thousand years is repeated six times, verse by verse. So so while that is obviously very plain, it's a very plain thing, also clearly a main thing to God in intent and purpose, it's not a main thing for my purpose in this humble message this morning. So there are incredible, intricate, beautiful details contained within even these two verses that we don't have time to go into now. And again, I look forward to preaching through Revelation in the future. And we have resources, a Revelation survey that I did some years back, and other resources as well to go into that now if you wish. But what we have here is the dead coming back to life at the end of the thousand years is the bodily resurrection of the unsaved. It is the resurrection of judgment in John 5, verse 29 that we read before. It's the resurrection of the wicked that we hear of in Acts 24, verse 15 from the testimony of the apostle Paul. This is the second death. This second death, this is the spiritual death beyond the bodily death. The first death, which all of us will face unless the Lord rescues us before, unless he comes back and calls us to himself. All human beings face the first death. The first death destroys the body. The second death destroys the body and soul eternally. That is the grave warning from God himself. This second death is referenced four times in the book of Revelation. If we've been reading it, we saw it earlier in chapter 2, verse 11, where there you read the words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then later on in our chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, verse 8, the 
cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. <clears throat> Augustine said, this is where, this is quote, this is where pain perpetually afflicts but never destroys. This is where corruption, bodily corruption, bodily decay, bodily pain goes on endlessly. <clears throat> the state is called in scripture, Augustine says, the second death. You see, according to the wisdom of the world, everybody wants to turn down the thermometer on hell. I mean, after all, softer ideas make better neighbors. But, beloved, when we come to the word of God, even here, there is no end and there is no escape. In verses 7 through 10, let me read those to you. Revelation 27 through 10. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Day and night forever. There is no end. Friend, there is no end to the second death. And by the way, Satan is not in hell. Right now, Satan's never been to hell. When he does go there, he will suffer more than any other being there, than any other unsaved human being, not any other, but of all the unsaved human beings or all the demons, he will suffer most. He will be incarcerated and incinerated forever, along with the rest of the inhabitants. That is God's kind warning to all of us here this morning. Edward Donnelly, in his book, Heaven and Hell, said, think of the pain of even the smallest burn. To touch a hot stove produces a blister which throbs for hours. A few drops of scalding water makes us wince and cry out. Even a tiny spark stings and irritates. So what must be the pain of being cast into flames, body and soul forever? We can't imagine what it'll mean for the resurrected bodies of the damned. We're not told how much of the suffering will be physical, but we can be sure at the very least the fire of hell means excruciating agony. And this is why the words are chosen by John and more importantly, Jesus. He finishes, it'll be a hideous counterpart of the bush that burned with fire but wasn't consumed. This is the same language that Jesus used. For example, Mark 9, verse 43, hell, the unquenchable fire. Uh, Isaiah 33, 14, the consuming fire, the everlasting burning. 66, 24, Isaiah 66, 24, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. So there is no end. There's also no escape. Look at verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the writ- written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved, there is no escape. This is the final judgment of all believers of all time for all time. And in verse 12, we see the great and the small. No great person can buy his way out. He can't exercise influence and pull strings. No small person can simply hide. None have so little that they can avoid judgment. None have so much that they can escape it. Dear friend, the Bible teaches that everyone is wrong, and every wrong will be judged. Because God is holy and perfect, he has made all, he sees all, and he tells us clearly he will judge all. And who is the specific judge? Lord Jesus. If you were here at our Bless, I was so encouraged by our Good Friday services. You may remember that 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. In chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, he's the lion from the tribe of Judah, a lamb standing as if slain. In other words, he's a lion-like lamb. Consider the way John describes him in his vision of him in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. This is, God, or this is John describing the vision of Jesus Christ, the lamb who's standing as a slain, who is also a lion. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Beloved, dear friend, that is Jesus Christ. That is the victorious, risen one who fights on your behalf, on our behalf, who intercedes even right now in heaven at the right hand of God on your behalf and on my behalf. And the situation is, when confronted with Jesus, what is man's response? Man in his natural state. In chapter 16, verses 9 through 11, there is a powerful picture of a representative example of the response. Verse 9, chapter 16, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven, 
because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. How can this be? How can man realize they know exactly who God is there? They know exactly there who is pouring out judgment on them, yet they did not repent. How could this be? Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. When it comes to bowing the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the issue is never a lack of information. Dear friend, it's never an insufficiency of evidence. It's never a failure to make Jesus attractive enough, to make the gospel compelling enough or convincing enough. The issue is what it's always been since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden is sinners love sin. Men and women, we are born men and women who transgress the law of God, who love darkness and so because of that reject the light of the word of God that's why Jesus said in John 3 20 everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light in one sense one sense God doesn't send us to hell we walk ourselves through the gates of hell you see the blind man hates the word that would give him sight. The deaf man hates the word of God that would give him hearing. The hungry man hates the word of God that would give him food. The weak man hates the word that would give him strength. The foolish man, the word that would give him wisdom. Dear friend, take this again as a kind warning. That's the first great truth, the eternal flame of the second death. The second great truth is the royal priesthood of the first resurrection. You see, it's interesting, in God's economy in the nation of Israel, we've seen this as we've been going through Hebrews. We're reminded of it. If we know the Old Testament, there were two offices, king and priest, and in the economy of God in Old Testament Israel, never shall the twain meet. They were separate. But what's fascinating, there was a man prior to Abraham, there was a man who met Abraham, who was a priest king, Melchizedek. And there was something momentous and marvelous that we see even in Hebrews of the king and priest coming together in the nature and role of Jesus Christ. What's fascinating now is here in the book of Revelation, he takes this momentous, marvelous truth And he applies it to you and to me. And we see in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 20, three promises. Promise of resurrection, protection, and coronation. Now the promise of resurrection, look in verse 5. This is the first resurrection. At the end of verse 4, all believers are resurrected. All believers up unto the beginning of the thousand years are resurrected. This is the bodily resurrection of the saved. This is the first resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the saved. It's called the resurrection of the righteous in Luke 14, verse 14. The resurrection of life that we read earlier in John 5, 29. The resurrection from the dead in Philippians 3, 11, Paul applying that only to believers. And the better resurrection in Hebrews 11, verse 35 which will be coming to shortly in our regular exposition. Uh, John, though here in our text, continues. Look at verse 6 at the beginning. Blessed and holy is the one 
the man, the woman, the older man, the older woman, the young man, the young woman, who has a part in the first resurrection. This is the fifth out of seven beatitudes in Revelation. Blessed are people. We have already seen four of them in Revelation. This is a fifth. What's interesting here is John, under the superintending influence of the Holy Spirit, adds holy, blessed and holy is the one. That addition of holy to blessed adds to the glory of this first resurrection that he describes for us. That's the promise of resurrection. There's a promise of protection. Uh, He says, look in the middle of verse 6, over these the second death has no power. Has no power. We've also seen this before, this protective nature and measure and ministry and grace and mercy from God on the part of his adopted daughters and sons back in chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So there is a promise of resurrection. There is a promise of protection. And there's a promise of coronation here. We exalt Lord Jesus. We know that he was crucified. We know that he, there was the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coronation at the right hand of the Father. And wonder of wonders, mystery of mystery, there is a coronation for you and for me in Christ. At the end of verse 6, but they will be in contrast to the wicked, devastating, eternal destruction of the second death. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This coupling together is not the first time we've seen this here in Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 6, he's made us to be a kingdom, priests. Chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne is that is that incredible Jesus is at the right hand of God the father as I even mentioned here we've seen in Hebrews interceding for us even as we listen to this message even as we sing these songs and you and I will be invited to sit down with him on his throne Verse 21 continues, as I also, Jesus says, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Staggering, incredible, the grace and mercy of God. Chapter 5, verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth, this royal priesthood. Or back in verse 4 here of chapter 20, I read it earlier. I saw thrones as they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. At the end of verse 4, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Or turn over a page, chapter 22, verse 5. Describing the eternal steady state, heaven, the forever state with Christ in his presence, verse 5, in his presence, verse 5. There shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, watch this, and they shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 20, verse 4 says that we will reign for those thousand years. Chapter 22, verse 5 says it doesn't stop at the end of the thousand years. We will reign forever and ever. What that looks like, and beloved, that's you, that's me. 
dear friend, beloved, ashes to ashes, dust to dust is only part of the story. It's act one. There's an act two. We need both acts of the story to understand the story. If we only have act one and don't know act two, we're left hanging. We don't know how the story ends. We don't have the last words which should be lasting. If we jump to act two without understanding act one, we don't know how we got there. Act two, act one is ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Act two is dust to glory. That is what awaits you and me in Christ, by his grace and mercy, by the work of Christ, by the faith and repentance that he gives us for his glory. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,185 of them describe this sin-stained world, this present misery. There are only four chapters in the Bible of the universe, the cosmos, the existence without sin. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The glories of heaven. Revelation 21, the first four verses. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Beloved, this is the beautiful picture. This is the beautiful promise God has for his children. Uh, turn for a moment or listen as I read Isaiah 25. I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah 25. You can listen as I read or you can turn there yourself. Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 9. Because it's the same truth, the same promise, the same God, the same plan for God's children. Isaiah 25 Beginning in verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, so that he might save us. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Dearly beloved, as the day grows darker, our hope glows brighter. Beloved, dear friend, God is good. He is good. He provides children to the childless. He provides jobs to the unemployed. He provides teaching to the uninstructed, friendship to the lonely, encouragement for the weary, care 
for the elderly. He offers answers to our questions, counsel in our struggles. He provides help to the helpless. This is the wandering being called back and strangers who are invited to come in. And I'll close with an allegory. I'll begin to close. Whenever a preacher says I'll close, that just means, you know, buckle up and get ready for the rest. An allegorical story that describes man trying to earn his way to heaven. A story is told of a land a long time ago. There were kings and serfs and lords and overlords. There was one particular cruel, evil overlord that took possession of a village and ruled it. And he took particular interest in a little peasant girl. He wanted her to serve him, so this cruel overlord lied to her and told her that if she'd serve him, he would provide a special dress for her because he knew this little girl wanted to see the king someday, that should the king come, he lied and told her that if she served him, he would give her a dress that would be fitting for a king. And the sweet little girl thought, if the king does come, when he comes, I want to appear before him and be dressed in a way to let him know that I am his faithful servant. So the cruel overlord told the little peasant girl that she must serve him 12 hours a day, seven days a week for three years to earn this beautiful dress that would be fit for a king. So the sweet little girl served this cruel overlord for three years. She made the fire. She mopped the floors, did the sweeping, the dusting, fixed the breakfast, washed the dishes, etc. Finally, At the end of three years, the overlord appeared with her dress, but it wasn't a beautiful dress fit for a king. It was an old, moth-eaten, vermin-infested dress with a terrible stench. But the overlord brought a special pair of glasses that would distort the vision of the sweet little girl. He presents the dress, but before he does that, he says to the little girl, to fully appreciate the beauty of this dress, you must wear these glasses and never look at the dress without these glasses to fully appreciate the beauty of it. So she brings the, she puts the glasses on, he brings the dress out, and she's dumbstruck. She's never seen anything so beautiful. No dress has been its equal. She says to herself, this dress surely is fit for a king. And With the glasses on, she takes off her little peasant's dress and puts on the vermin-infested, moth-eaten, stench-filled dress. She goes and looks at herself in the mirror and squeals with delight because it's the most beautiful dress she's ever seen. Months go by. Finally, a herald of the king comes to the little village and announces the king's coming and only those dressed in a manner fitting for his audience will gain that audience. But... The herald continued, he said, I have good news, wonderful news. I've brought carts filled with garments prepared in the king's tailor house under his personal supervision and with his special provision. All who wish, any who wish to appear before the king may do so freely. We have a garment perfectly suited just for you, free for the taking. The message of his arrival reaches the little girl And she says to the herald, she says, sir, I want to, an audience, I want to meet the king. And the herald looks at her and says, sweet girl, you could never appear before the king dressed like that. And she's shocked. 
She looks at him and says, sir, why would you say this? This is a beautiful dress fit for the king. I worked for three years to earn this garment. My hands bled. I sweated. Don't you see this garment? This dress is fit for a king. And the messenger says, says sweet little girl, that, that dress is a rag. It has holes and stains. It's not fit for the king. It's fit for the garbage heap. The little girl is hurt. She's wounded. She says, but it's, it's beautiful to me. My master gave it to me and told me that it's beautiful and fit for a king. Finally, it begins to dawn on the messenger. He says, sweet little girl, have you ever looked at the dress without those glasses on? And she says, oh, no, my master told me I must never look at this dress without these glasses. Come here, little girl. The messenger brings her to him. He puts her on his lap, gently lifts the glasses off her eyes, and she looks down, and she's stunned. For the first time, she sees the garment for what it really is, the loathsome thing that she toiled, labored, and sweated for. She sees it for what it really is and all its horror, horror, its holes, its stain, crawling with vermin. (laughs) She begins to cry, sir, what shall I do? I want to see the king. And the messenger graciously says to her, he takes her in her arms and says, sweet girl, I haven't just come to announce the coming of the king. I brought garments fit for him. They come from his own shop made under his personal supervision. He takes a beautiful dress from his car, perfectly suited for her, a dress perfectly fit for the king. She puts it on. The king comes And the king joyfully receives her to himself. Dear friend, the little girl in the story is you. It's me. It's all of us. We are born sinners. We are born draped in sin-stained, hold-filled, stench garments. The evil overlord is Satan, who blinds the mind so that you don't see the light of the gospel of Lord Jesus Satan, in his nefarious scheming, says, work, earn your salvation. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. The moth-eaten, vermin-infested garment is all efforts to earn our way to salvation, to work our way to heaven. The mirror that the little girl looked in is the word of God. The beautiful garment is the righteousness of Christ. And the king, of course, is Lord Jesus. This is an allegorical picture of the substitutionary nature where God, when he looks at you or me in Christ, he doesn't see our sin-stained life. He sees the perfect, righteous, spotless, stain-free life of obedience of Christ. And this king came down and died on my behalf. He died on your behalf if you would put your faith and trust in him. We've heard stories before. We've heard stories of heroes, believers or unbelievers in wartime, where the grenade comes in the foxhole and one hero falls on the grenade to save his soldiers. But have you ever heard a story of a soldier who goes to the enemy's foxhole and falls on a grenade to save the life of his enemies. That's what Lord Jesus did. Thousands of people die the agonizing death of a crucifixion, but only one man had the unmitigated wrath of God poured out on him on that cross some 2,000 years ago. 
Understand this, dear friend. Jesus didn't die so that you would never die. You will die. We will all die. But Jesus died so that you might not die the second death, the death of the body and the soul. Forgiveness of sin is where God pardons you as judge and God accepts you. God adopts you as father. In Christ, we await the final consummation of our faith. When hope is realized, love is perfected, and our faith becomes sight. When the flickering candles is extinguished and we walk into the dawn of the endless day, when we leave the land of the dying to enter into the land of the living forevermore. Beloved, dear friend, don't put a question mark where God puts a period. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We again praise you in your holiness, in your righteousness. We praise you in your judgment. We praise you and thank you and are eternally grateful in your mercy, in your grace, in your eternal plan of salvation. Thank you for the beautiful gift of salvation, the beautiful garment of your righteousness, of your righteous life that covers our sin-stained life. Thank you for the newness in life that we enjoy as your adopted children, as born-again believers. And dear Lord, merciful Father, for anyone here this morning listening now or later who is not in the Beloved, who is still under the dark cloud of your wrath. Lord, let them come to you. And we know that if they come to you, they ask for forgiveness. If they cry out for you to save them, that you would receive them to yourself, adopt them into the family. Old things would pass away. New things would come. And they would have the eternal joy of seeing you as you truly are in heaven. It is for the glory of your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.